You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Now, as we all know, Interstate Batteries says it all in the name. They sell batteries. They make a lot of batteries, right? And they have thousands of retail stores all over the United States. And they also have a website where you can find out more information about specific batteries that you're looking for. They have truck batteries. They have batteries for trail cameras, remote controls, you name it, they have a battery for it. And you can find out a lot more about their company and the products that they offer on their website, interstatebatteries.com. Or you can walk into one of your local retail stores and whoever's working there will be more than happy to help you. So whatever you're doing, if you have a battery or you have some battery needs, check out Interstate Batteries or visit their website, interstatebatteries.com. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. Thanks for tuning in. This upcoming podcast is kind of the second part of a two-part series that I've done with Mark uh, over at Wired to Hunt. And the first one that we did, and I strongly suggest going back and listening to it if you haven't already, um, I had a a hunting trip planned uh, here in May earlier this month, and I went down to Texas in a high fence ranch and so the previous podcast was me talking about it before even experiencing it now this podcast is basically a direct recap of that experience right i talk about um some misconceptions that i instantly saw uh we discuss whether or not this is fair chase. Uh, we talk about the animals, their defense mechanisms. Do they have escape routes? And all the other things that kind of, uh, or taboo subjects that go along with quote unquote high fence hunting uh, versus canned hunting, uh, breeding, uh, all these things we did, we discuss in this podcast. And there's still a lot that I we didn't even touch on just because of time constraints. But you know, we start this podcast off talking about CWD and what I strongly suggest before you even start listening to this podcast is just let down all your judgment and just listen to it. Listen to what Mark has to say, listen to what I have to say, and then leave the rest alone, right? Just kind of you don't, I'm not even asking you to make your opinion at the end of it. I just want you to absorb the information that I say, um, maybe learn from my experience. I'm not telling you whether it's right or wrong or what you should believe or what you shouldn't believe. But 
I feel like there's a lot that goes on with operations like this that are either misunderstood or culturally different than what a majority of the other hunters, let's say in the north uh, or east, are, are doing. And I think as a population, and I say this in the podcast, uh, sometimes if we don't understand things, we start to judge it in a not so good light. And I think that, uh, and I can say this as far as my experience is concerned, that um, I think I was taken back in a way by this experience. And it forced me to say, you know what, maybe this isn't a bad thing, or maybe this, you know, I can understand it now. And I think that's all we're really asking is for you to listen, understand where some of these people are coming from, and maybe not be so quick to judge whether it's public land versus private land versus high fence hunting versus caned hunting, canned hunting versus, you know, crossbows, bows, rifles, guns, whatever right? Um, And we talk a little little bit about all that stuff in this podcast. Uh, And I think uh, you guys are really going to enjoy this. Before we get into today's podcast, uh, we got to do a quick commercial. And it's that time of year again, where Nine Finger Chronicles and Lone Wolf uh, portable tree stands are going to be, we're going to be doing some giveaways. And I want to tell you how you can get entered into that giveaway. First and foremost, you need to go to lonewolfhuntingproducts.com. Lonewolfhuntingproducts.com slash nine fingers. That's the number nine followed by the word fingers. Lonewolfhuntingproducts.com slash the number nine fingers. And what that it's going to do is it's going to take you to a page and on this page you're going to want to enter your first name your last name and enter your email address now once you submit your email address into this you're going to automatically be registered to be entered in four different giveaways throughout the next couple months right we're doing one in july august september and october right and you get to pick you can have a set of sticks. If your name is drawn, you can have a set of sticks. You can have a, uh, a alpha, an assault, a climber. You get to pick whatever you want, right? One tree stand of whatever you want. And uh, that's a pretty kick-ass deal, right? So enter today. And when you do enter and submit your email address, it's automatically going to kick out a discount code for you to where you can save $50 off all orders over $199, right? So if you decide to buy a tree stand and use this this code, hint, the code is 9FC50, um, uh, you're going to save 50 bucks off of it and be entered in to win a free tree stand. So it's a win-win scenario. Please go take advantage of this and uh, hunt with a lone wolf, man. They're a badass stand. Other than that, we're going to get into today's podcast. Uh, Like I said, keep an open mind uh, because I kept an open mind and I think it's, uh, I think you're really going to enjoy it. So hope you enjoy. I'm joined once again by Mark Kenyon on today's podcast. Mark, how are you doing? Good, good. Glad to be back. Thanks yeah. for, thanks for uh, letting me jump back on here so quickly. Yeah, absolutely. And I thought I needed you back on this podcast again because of the previous podcast that we did, where we discussed at the time was my first ever high quote unquote high fence hunt down in Texas. And uh, so, for all the listeners who haven't listened to that podcast, I I think I titled it 
high fence hunting dilemma or high high fence dilemma or something like that uh go check that out because that's kind of a prequel to this podcast where on this podcast i'm we're gonna be recapping the uh the actual hunt talking about my thoughts maybe how they changed and, and just what happened after i had this full experience so um mark did you happen to follow along on instagram at all i did i did follow along on instagram okay cool cool so you kind of have you kind of had a little taste of what was kind of going down there right a little bit of a taste yep got to see some pictures got to see a little bit of what happened but but I largely don't know much, okay. so I'm very, very interested to hear from you on this one. Perfect, and that's the whole point. I don't even know if we've talked since then. We've um, not. So this is going to be kind of just a, a very blunt, like conversation about the whole, the whole ordeal. Yep. Cool. And you're okay with me being, you know, you're okay with me asking the tough questions, yeah, right? The the tough questions, the devil's advocate. You know, getting all sides of the story because on our last uh, podcast, I had really good feedback from people, right? Um, and some were supportive of the high fence industry, like, "Hey, man, that's the only way we in Texas or down south in certain places get to hunt, have the opportunity to hunt." Um, there was still some people that blatantly opposed anything that has to do with high fence and then there was the overwhelming majority of people were like you know what i'm glad you're doing this because my whole thought process going into this was there's no way you can really know something until you actually go do it and you know now that i've gone and done it i can actually voice an honest opinion of how all of this works right um, I asked a ton of questions while I was down there to the guys, you know, the, the general manager, um, some of the guides, just like asking tons of questions to get all this information. So, yes, play devil's advocate, ask the tough questions, and I'm going to do my best to answer, answer all of them. All right. I can do that. So I believe on the last episode, and this is where I want to start because I think it can be covered fairly quickly and easily. Um, yeah, there's a, a lot of hypothetical um, things that could potentially happen with this, but I I remember you saying something about CWD and some of the bad apples could be um, could be helping the spread of CWD within the the captive the captive servid industry, right? Yep, that is one of the concerns. Okay, so I'm going to tell you what these guys do, right? So not this last year, but the three previous years, from my understanding, what these guys did to um, combat CWD, because if these guys have CWD uh, on on from deer on deer, or if deer in their uh, in on their ranch have CWD, the state of Texas comes in and they wipe out a lot of deer. Right? They'll go in and they'll shoot on site, and they there's no discretion from what they shoot. Right, whether it's a doe, a button buck, a you know a six-year-old buck, they go in and they wipe out everything. So it's very important for them to have numbers in these pastures that you know are suitable living, because the state of Texas still comes in and actually monitors and says, okay, you have this many acres, you have to have this many deer on 
this eight on this many acres, right? So the state is still involved in that. Now, where these guys come in and they go uh, um, above and beyond uh, is CWD testing. Because if they get, you know, so CWD not only hurts their business, but it hurts their their deer herd as well, right? Yeah, that makes sense. Yep. Okay, so over a three-year period, these guys have killed, they, they've killed 300 deer, and they've had each and every one of them tested on their dime uh, for to check for CWD. And they have to, you know... I, I don't know the how the tests happen like 100%, but they have to take the brain stem. They have to take a couple glands out. They're doing this all on their own, and then they send it in for testing. On top of that, every deer that gets harvested inside their ranch also gets tested, right? So they did a, they did a big group of 300 over three years, and on top of that, they now test every single uh animal that comes out of there to see if there's you know cwd on their farm right and so far to this day they haven't had any positive tests come off of their ranch right so to me i look at that and i'd love to hear what your thoughts are on this to me that sounds like an operation that is actively trying to combat or at least know if they have any type of, you know, CWD running through their ranch. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, it sounds like they are following the best practices and the protocol that I think most States are acquiring now. So that's good. Yeah. Um, and I think this is a instance of a, of a operation that's, that's doing things the right way, which I'm glad to hear. Yep. Um, I would just say that, Unfortunately, it doesn't seem like everyone's doing that. It mm-hmm. still seems like many of the outbreaks of CWD we've seen and the spreading of CWD has been in many times pointed towards an operation that's not doing things the right way. Right. Um, so, I mean, there's been many, many cases where we've seen CWD in these captive herds um, many times because you get this transportation of, of animals from location to location, right? They're right. buying and selling these animals. They're transferring to different states, different places, different operations. Um, so, so yeah, I'm glad that I think that there's definitely been a push within that industry and from managing agencies that we need to try to, uh, try to manage it better because there is this risk, but if it's handled properly, we can mitigate a lot of that risk. It sounds like these guys you worked with are mitigating that risk as much yep. as possible. I think that's good. Yep. Um, I just hope that's something that, you know, continues to be monitored across the country, across other folks where there might be those bad apples. Right. Um, because, cause yeah, that transfer of these animals all around seems to be a big, um, part of the larger issue. So right. that needs to continue to be looked at. And from, from the sounds of the conversations that I've had, uh, had with these guys. And by the way, I just want to say that, uh, the name of the operation, I feel very confident saying it on this podcast now is the, the lazy CK ranch in Texas. That's the name of the, the place. So, um, if you want more information of their, their operation, you can go check it out on, on their website right now. They're, they probably don't go into detail about all their CWD testing and stuff on, on their website, but I can assure you that if you call these guys and ask them questions, they will be more than happy to answer any type of question you have, you know, you have for them regarding their operation. Now, what's, what's cool is that 
I feel that that has that is trickling, that's snowballing throughout the quote unquote high fence industry where the 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 testing and the management of CWD and other, you know, sicknesses that can spread through a deer herd are are being addressed and addressed in a major way. Because if like I said, the state of Texas still regulates their deer herd and if that there's an outbreak on their on their ranch their herd gets wiped out and now they're starting from scratch again and that's just from a financial standpoint that's a bad that's bad for business yeah it's in their self-interest yes. to monitor and to deal with that because yeah it'll put them out of business if they get it so yep. so i get that the yep. incentives are the incentives are lined up there for for them to be doing the right thing hopefully yep absolutely so from a from a cwd standpoint you know me going into it i hadn't like i almost i felt like these this particular ranch and again and you know this just as well as i do this is a small sample size of the entire uh whether whether it's the high fence industry or cwd as a whole you know because there's you know i'm not required in the state of iowa to have any of my deer tested for cwd and there's a lot of other um, it's it's all on a voluntary basis right Uh, as far as iowa is concerned but um you know there i don't know are do you know of any states that CWD is mandatory after you shoot a deer? I'm pretty sure it's in regions. There's regions, certain yeah. regions where you're supposed to get them checked. Um, so, for example, uh, here in Michigan, in some of the CWD-positive counties, you are supposed to, and, and I might get the details a little bit wrong here. I can't remember exactly um, the exact verbiage. But if I remember right, if you're in one of these counties, if you wanted to transfer, if you wanted to take your deer across county lines, um, you were supposed to get it mandatory checked. Um, and, and a few other things like that. So, so yeah, so I got all my deer that I killed here close to home in Michigan. I all, I got all those tested for CWD. Okay. And is that mandatory or on a volunteer basis? So like I said, I think if you're going to do certain things, if you want to cross county lines, I think it was mandatory. Um, some of it was voluntary. Some of it was like they're, you're supposed to, but there wasn't like some kind of backing by law behind it. So if you yeah. didn't, I don't think you're going to get in trouble. But they were asking everyone in these areas, that, like, yes, you're supposed to do it. But gotcha. Okay, cool. Um, and so on this sample size of this ranch that I was on, I thought it was cool that they were taking active steps to go do this. And again, that was the, a small sample size. However, I feel like from the conversations I've had with these guys, it is it's something that the community uh, and the neighboring ranches and some of the other bigger ranches in that area are uh, are actively taking steps and trying to fight it or keep it under control or you know not do business with people who have uh, CWD positive environments, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah, that's so, that's good. Yep. So I thought, you know, going into it, I thought it was the Wild West down there. There was no regulation. That you could do whatever you wanted, and there's there's actually a lot of regulation, and there's a lot of it. So um, the fir- that was the first thing that I kind of was an aha moment because, like, I had these conversations right off the bat with these guys. I only had a small period of time there, and I was like, hey, man, um, what you know what are you doing about cwd because cwd is a hot topic and they're saying that you and when i say you the high fence is and they kind of laid it out for me so that was kind of a 
something that lightened the load uh, a little bit for me walking into a place like this that was so like I, I pull up this driveway and or I'm driving down the road and absolutely every farm in we're talking hundreds of miles uh, from the airport to the ranch is a high fence every single one of them there's a high fence everywhere right whether it's just deer in there or exotics in there um that i was like oh my god everything is high fence everything is high fence so if you want to hunt you're going to be hunting in a high fence environment in and that's like 90 minutes from the airport to this ranch right so that's a lot of ground that is yeah Tell me about the situation there, though. So, I mean, when I when I say that, I mean, what was what did this ranch look like? What yeah. do these enclosures look like? What I mean, yeah, because there's all these different images I have in my mind of what it might look like, what it might feel like. What was the reality of the situation there on the ground? Again, another ming, another big misconception. Okay, so you know, I'm having these conversations with these guys on the airport, not really about the ranch itself, but I'm driving down the road and all I see is high fence. So I'm assuming that, oh man, it's just all these like hundred acre pens or whatever. And they don't even call them pens. The terminology they use is pastures, right? So I, we pull in to the ranch and we, is that just putting wrapping paper on a piece of shit? Yeah. I see. Or is that, I would, or is it really something different? I would have said wrapping paper on a piece of shit. But then I get the conversations, right? They have a 1,700-acre pasture, which is high fence all around. They have a 2,200-acre, and there's no smaller pens within these. It's one giant pasture, but there is high fence around it. So I took a step back, and I did some math, and I'm looking at the one pasture that I did most of my hunting in, which was the the bigger of them, 2,200 acres, might have been 2,300 acres, and it's four square miles, right? So you have one pasture that is four square miles. And after hunting them and looking at them, I'm just like, dude, the animals have escape routes. And this is where it gets weird, right? So we, we go in and, uh, and they had a couple other pastures that were smaller. I would say in the, uh, I would say maybe 300, uh, 300 uh, acre range, but they didn't use those as much. Those were almost used as a, okay, we're bringing new animals into the ranch. And that is the, you know, like when you put a, a fish in a fish tank, you're supposed to leave it in the bag, let it get used to its environment. Then you dump the bag out into the rest of it. Mm-hmm. That, it was almost like some of these smaller enclosures. Yes, there was hunting in them, but they used them to get the, the animal to relax, acclimated, and then they moved them into the bigger pastures. Okay. Okay. So instantly I had a, another kind of aha moment where I was like, okay, this is not what I thought it was. I, I can't see fences wherever I go. Right. Not one of the places that I sat at, you know, which is your, your typical blind in front of a feeder type scenario. Um, I could not see a fence anywhere. Uh, and these we're talking sections we're talking a mile like i i remember one of the i just looked up uh on i pulled up onyx and i looked at uh where i was located and i was like okay i am a half a mile t- 
to the closest fence, and then I'm two miles to the other close, or like a, a mile and a half to the other closest fence, right? So I look at that and I say, okay, the deer that are coming in to this area or that are living in this area have escape routes, right? They're still using their senses. And I will tell you that of all the deer I've seen through all of all the tree stands that I've ever sat in, you know, whether that's in, in Nebraska, Iowa, and now Texas, the whitetails in this are some of the most spooked whitetails and cautious whitetails I've ever seen, right? We couldn't hunt whitetails because it wasn't in season in Texas, right? We were hunting specifically exotics. But these deer were so cautious traveling through areas. And just like driving down a country road, you could see them. But the second you stopped and slowed down, they were gone. They were running, right? It, it, this My misconception going into this was, hey, I can, I can walk and feed these deer out of my hands. Right. And the more I was there these animals were using their defense mechanisms and they were running away from us every chance they could. I got busted multiple times, by the way, and they would sit back and they would blow and they'd blow and they'd blow. And then they wouldn't come out until uh, dark. So what about, um, and I don't know how this is all broken out, but there's a couple different types of whitetail hunts I see offered on their website. Mm -hmm. There's like your regular whitetail hunt, and then there's what they call their trophy whitetail yes. hunt. And in their description here, they say, we offer hunting packages for trophy whitetail bucks from 180 inches to 250 plus inches. We guarantee you the opportunity to harvest the buck size of your choice. Right. How do they guarantee you that? Yep. All right. So... Before I answer that question, I want I want to break down the two big the two biggest pastures, right? So the twenty two hundred acre pasture is what they call the the native herd, right? So all the deer that are in here have never been introduced to outside genetics. It is just the the, the Texas herd that has been highly managed, right? Then the 17, it's the 15 or the 1700 acre uh, pasture has what they call the genetic. It's the genetic one where they do a lot of their trophy hunts in. Okay. So that is where they have the freak shows come in, the science projects, the, the, the 400 inch, whatever. They release that deer into a pen and it breeds with the the population that's already in there these these deer are off limits to shoot right they're there specifically to breed and i think the term they use was called breeder bucks right off limits to shoot now that genetics gets passed into that pasture and then the, those deer are born naturally into the environment and that is what they can hunt okay then that big that big buck is darted and then it's, from my understanding, it's darted and removed from that pen and given back to either if they've bought it or if they've, uh, they, they rent them out. I'm not sure how they do that. Uh, I didn't get into uh, that, but all the, anim the, the big buck is introduced into the pen or the, the enclosure. I, I have a hard time saying pen and pasture because yes, it's high fence, but it's so big. Like it's, it's really not a cage. You know what I mean? 
Mm-hmm. Right. So what I think they mean by we guarantee you, what's the terminology? We guarantee you an opportunity. Let me see here exactly what it says. It says, yeah, we guarantee you the opportunity to harvest the buck size of your choice. Mm-hmm. And later it also says we go the extra mile and making sure our clients only worry is placing the shot on their trophy. Yeah. So it kind of says they emphasize the fact you don't need to do anything but pull the trigger. Right. So after talking with these guys, what I think that means, again, and this is just me putting my my opinion on it, is they have these deer pe- pretty much pegged, and they're visiting feeders at specific times of the year. They have trail camera pictures just like we have trail camera pictures of our deer, and they're pretty much honing in to where these deer are at, and then they're placing their client right right there and if the deer steps out they get a shot at it now remember a lot of their hunts are rifle hunts right so all it really takes is for a buck to step out within 100 200 yards of wherever and the guy's going to get a shot at least a shot on it right so i would say in that scenario yes that like they are they are they have they have it managed to the point where some guy who just wants to go in and shoot a deer can go in and shoot a deer and yep. whether it's 200 so yes that is where like so for me that is where it's it becomes that little gray area as far as where my where my stance lies now playing devil's advocate there are farms in Iowa that are low fenced, highly managed farms, but and, and we all know who some of these people are, right? Some of these industry people have highly managed farms to where they know through either cell cameras or wherever, they have a deer stepping out at exactly the same time every single day. And then they can go in and they can they can shoot it. And that's that's how a lot of these, you know, a lot of these deer are it's just trail camera information and, and patterning deer, and they're able to do that at a high level uh, in there as well. So every time I think of, about that, and then I add into the equation the the size of the enclosure, regardless of how big their antlers are, they're still like I don't know, like does that make sense? Does that make sense to me or to you? I, to, to I, I understand. I understand the argument you're making. Right. Um, I don't necessarily agree with it, but I understand what you're saying. Now, what about the fact there's this whole animal husbandry part of it, though? Right. Like, would you say that it's the same even though they're they're bringing in a genetically manipulated buck and letting it breed with everything and, and managing all that? Does that does that change how you feel about things at all or, or, it, or no? It does. It does. Um, that, to me, I'm not interested in that. I'm not a – like, I don't know. I think what this what this whole trip has allowed me to do is to understand that there is a cultural difference in hunting throughout the United States, right? Mm-hmm. Whether that is where you hunt up in Michigan, whether that's where I hunt, you know, in Iowa, southeast where they have hunt clubs, they have big tracts of land where, you know, people, you know, they have groups of guys that hunt. And then down in Texas, where it's the same thing, right? There's just people coming. It, it's the cultural difference that is 
because it's accepted down there. Right. Just like the way we hunt is accepted where we hunt. And I almost, I, I feel like it's, I don't know. I, I feel like what we don't, we don't have to like it. Like you don't have to like it. I don't have to like what they're doing and it's not for me and it's not for you, but because of the cultural difference, it's not that these are bad people doing evil things. You know what I mean? Definitely. Uh, and Definitely. I, th- I think that it's what we don't understand is what we tend to hate in life or look down upon. And I really do think, and this is going to be a bold statement, but I really do think that if you were to go down there and check it out yourself, you would have a completely different opinion about what it is that th- these high fence operations are doing. Now I say high fence because these guys are adamant that there is a huge difference down in Texas. They fight the terminology high fence versus canned hunting. And I think that the canned hunting world, which me and you are both opposed to is a lot different than the high fence operations that, that we see a lot of these, uh, a lot of these Texas hunts that you see on TV are in high fence operations, right? Um, it's just that they're very large high fence operations, like uh, 2,200 acres. I mean, some of them are even bigger. I mean, there was one down the road that I think had 10,000 acres of continuous land uh, with no fences or, or quote unquote pens in it. And that, that really even makes the, the gray area bigger for me because I look at it like this. I look at it like the deer are using their defense mechanisms. The deer are using, uh, they, they have exit routes they can run to. It's not like they're getting jammed into a corner of the pen. Right. And they can disappear. They can bust you and check this out. So I had a guy or one of the, the head guys at the ranch tell me this, uh, this story. He was watching a three-year-old buck for a, you know, he, he's watching this buck had really good genetics and they were passing it as a three-year-old. I think it was his four-year-old year and his five-year-old deer, the buck didn't show up. So they're thinking coyotes must've got him. He must've got injured in a fight, whatever. His sixth year, the buck shows back up and he's a giant. So, it's not like it, it's it's crazy because when he told when he told me that I was like wait I have deer that do that right so these deer have hiding places they have escape routes and that right there kind of changed and then actually when it, when you drive through the ranch that kind of just changed my opinion or actually grade up my opinion more about what quote unquote fair chase really is yeah I mean I get what you're saying. Um... And I think you're spot on when it comes to the fact that there is a there is a need to try to be understanding of and tolerant of different cultural norms yes. uh, when it comes to hunting. And like you said, like there's things that go on in Michigan that might 
when viewed from Maine or from Georgia, they might look at what we do and think, oh, you're crazy. Like, why would you do that? Like, I don't know, deer drives maybe are something that are popular in some areas, but in other places they might think that's unethical to shoot at a running deer. Or right. in some parts of the country, hunting deer with dogs is a popular thing. And yep. there it's just what they've always done, and it's a great tradition. It brings family members together, and they have a great time with it, while in other parts of the country they think that's horrible. Right. Um, so hunting over bait versus not with bait. So. Yep. I get that. I totally understand that. And I think you're right that it's important to remember not to demonize like the people. Like these aren't people trying to do some horrible things or right. people doing what they know, doing, you know, participating in this the way they've learned to to love the resource and everything. So I, so I I'm all for that. I understand yeah. that. Yeah. Um this just has this this I think I think I feel you when it comes to like these different sizes of pastures or whatever. Right. And the fact that especially a lot of places in Texas, high fence in the way you're defining it is, is kind of the norm in a lot of places. And I've heard from some listeners too, they're like, Hey, I, I hunt a 5,000 acre property or we've got a 500 acre property or whatever. And that's just what we do. Everyone has the fences. Um, so like, I'm trying to be understanding of that and trying not to place judgments on things that I don't fully understand myself. So, so I get that. Um, there's still like for just for me personally, I have a hard time knowing where the line is drawn, where it goes from like feeling okay because it's big enough to feeling like it's too small or if there's a line there or what. And so for me personally, I would err on like I'm just not going to touch it because it's just such a slippery, weird slope and and doesn't fit with what I personally want my experience to be. But I, but I understand why other people might do it. Um, and you're right. What you're describing in a lot of ways probably sounds a lot different than what a lot of us might think of when we um, think of canned hunting. Yes. So so that's good insight. Um, what was your experience like once you started actually hunting? Because you, you got onto the property. You checked it out. There's a couple of these pastures that have the fences around them. Yeah. Um, what was the hunting experience like? So we get out, we get out of the airport. We drive to the ranch. And you know, like I said, the first thing that you're doing is you're, you're driving through a high fence, right? You're driving down this long driveway. There are some exotic species, um, on the left side. There's some exotic species on the right side. We get to the camp, we get dressed and we actually go out for our first hunt. And as we're driving out for our first hunt, we, we have to cross through, um, a couple, or no, one big high fence, another high fence. Right. And you know, so at this point, I'm already like I've already made up my mind. This is this suck. You know, like I, I'm not into this. I'm not into this. But at this, in the back of my head, I'm like, okay, I'm not hunting whitetails. So, to me, I have this, this thought in my head that because I can hunt whitetails in Iowa, I would never hunt whitetails in a environment like this. And I think, I think whitetails is where it kind of would potentially cross the line for me. Like number one. I just don't see myself hunting in an environment like that. Like, I think I don't want to say I'm in the same boat as you because I think, I don't know, maybe I would do it. Maybe I wouldn't. I, I, I really haven't made up my mind on that yet, but when it comes to exotics, I, my thought is there's a different, it's a different animal. I can't hunt them really anywhere else in the United States. Uh, so this would be the only place I would get to hunt them. And they're still in the bigger enclosures along with the whitetails, right? 
So I'm, we're driving down through the, uh, through the camp and like in, like in Texas, I had a guide with me at all times, right? These guys were my shadow. They would kind of, um, tell me what I can and I can't shoot. Uh, we had a list of animals that were on the table as far as what we could hunt. And then the other stuff we just watched, right? Like I said earlier, we couldn't watch, we couldn't shoot deer because deer, it wasn't deer season down there in Texas. Even though it was a, a high fence operation, we were not allowed to shoot whitetails. So we get up there, I, I crawl into a blind, and there's a feeder that's on a timer right in front of us. And at 6.30, the timer or the timer went off and it spat out a little bit of feed. Now, again, a misconception was these animals were at these feeders all day long and there was no, like, just piles of feed. When, all, when in all reality, the amount of protein that is being put out by these feeders is, like, I want to say a cereal bowl full. It's crazy. It's not a lot. And I think it's just to get the animals conditioned to come into the feeder. And then they eat, and then they go eat somewhere else. Also, Texas has had a lot of rain this year, and that makes, uh, there was a ton of more, uh, you know, a lot more grass than other years, you know, from what they've told me. And so the, the actual animals didn't necessarily need the feed to, to survive. They had plenty of other options. There was deer eating everything. Uh, around there and then they come into the feed just for a little bit the feeder just for a little bit and then they walk away and then they walk away and i'm talking they're in there for maybe a minute or two and then they're gone right um so i get in there we start chilling in in about you know 15 minutes here comes something called a black buck it's uh it's an antelope with spiral antlers it's probably the size of a young doe um but it's got these um 18 inch horns on their head and it walks right up. And I, at this point I wasn't even excited because I didn't know, like this is the first time I've ever been within shooting range of one of these exotic animals. And so the guy goes, I, I look at him, I go, so is that a shooter? Just cause I was curious, not because I wanted to shoot it. And he says to me, well, it's, it would be on the smaller, it's, it's a shooter, but on the smaller scale, it's only 17 and a half inches. Uh, it's, you can still shoot it, but a, a trophy, we consider a trophy, anything 18 inches and over. Right. And by the way, these guides can look at an animal and measure it in their brain without looking at all these different species and tell you a number that is, I'm not joking, like a quarter of an inch off. These guys, it blew my mind. I wish I could be like that, right? So this black buck comes up and I didn't shoot it. I just watched it because it was like, it was a new experience for me. I, I wasn't even in kill mode at that time. I was just like in national geographics mode. I just wanted to see this animal. So I just watched it for the very first time. Now, looking back on it, I kind of wish I shot it because the they say that the meat on these animals is really really good, almost better than a whitetail. Uh, it's hmm. better it's better t- tasting than a whitetail, and so I, I looking back, I wish I would have shot it. But at that point, it was something completely. It was just I was, I was in observation mode, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. 
so yeah, that, that was the first night and the first experience. Okay. So saw the black buck, passed the black buck. And how many days of hunting did you actually have? Let's see. There was that night and then three days. Okay. Right? So, so keep us moving through. Yeah. Okay. So these guys get a, a, a variety of people to come through their, their gates, right? I communicated with my guide how I wanted to hunt, right? So um, example is we pull into into where this blind was at, and there's this big access deer standing right there with, at about 40 yards, I'd say maybe inside 40 yards at, within my shooting range. And he goes, hey, man, grab your bow, get out, you can shoot that. And I looked at him and I said, man, that's not my style. Like, I'm not into just getting off of a vehicle, stepping out and shooting it. And I only I only had like a minute, maybe less than a minute before that thing ended up running away. But then at that point, my guide was like, okay, I understand, you know, what your kind of style of hunt is. And then he changed the way he, like, he didn't, he never asked me to do that again. Um, I was like, so I, was that a, was that an exception or did you have more opportunities where these animals will just kind of stand around and, and give you that opportunity close? Yeah. So there were a couple other options, uh, where the, some of these animals were coming into a feeder. Um, but like I said earlier, the whitetails were so, they were so freaked, like they were so on edge all the time that they would come in real quick. And then they'd go same with some of the other animals, like some of the female animals, um, they'd come in and then they'd go. And the, the, the males really didn't, they sat back and waited and waited and waited and waited and waited. And then it starts to get dark and then they come in. And then at that point you're like, man, I don't think I can shoot them at this point. Right. So there's, there's still somewhat of a waiting game and a hunting type of strategy that that goes into this right um maybe not as much strategy but you are you are having to wait and you are having to be patient and you are having to pick your shots and and all like all these things right so so i said man is there a possibility that we can do some spot and stock hunts and so the next morning we went to a um another blind and uh, where a lot of whitetails and hogs were showing up. And uh, we had a big boar hog come through the area, but he wasn't in bow range. He didn't come to the feeder. And uh, like I asked these questions like, okay, so I have, I was under the impression that all these animals would just flock to the feeder. And they're like, no, man, these hogs, like some of them don't even come to the feeders because they don't need to. Right, they have dead animals they can eat. There's roots, there's plants, there's um, this time of year. One of the biggest threats inside of other than coyotes are wild boars or wild hogs eating the fawns. Right. So again, another misconception, kind of going all over the place here, is there were uh, two days before we showed up, there was a mountain lion sighting. There's coyotes that they can go in and out of these fences under the fence as they please. There's bobcats, there's the wild hogs. So not only, you know, are there's, there, there's also threats other than humans to these deer. Right. 
And that kind of was, you know, I thought there wasn't going to be anything in here. These mountain lions, they're literally jumping over the fences. The the coyotes are digging underneath of them. The bobcats are digging underneath of them. They're getting in and out. You know, there's dens in there. They raise their youngs in, young in there. And um, so there, there's threats outside of uh, humans in these, in these environments as well, which was kind of odd for me. Yeah. Do they ever have issues? So if they've got like coyotes and stuff that can dig underneath and get through do they ever have issues with animals getting out digging out you know or using a hole like that to get out or jumping over or anything like that um you know that's a good question uh i've never uh i've never i never really asked them that as far as you know uh, a coyote digging under a, a fence maybe a younger deer could get through it but i would assume that they they don't even try uh mm-hmm. there they did have uh, they did tell me some stories of some of these exotic animals like these these fences are nine foot tall ten foot tall uh, some of these exotic animals if they are threatened enough they and cornered enough they they can jump that high and leap wow. over it and and they're like there's this one I forget the name of it um, we joked about it. I think we called it a Pierce Brosnan a Pierce Brosnan deer it's some Chinese uh, exotic animal or African exotic animal. And they say that they can jump that high like a whitetail jumps a farm fence. Just, you know, kind of gets on his back legs with ease and then jumps over. Wow. If threatened, they, they can do that fairly easy. And uh, so, you know, same with the whitetail. They said that, you know, when they go on their, their spotlighting missions because they have to uh, get counts to give back to the state of Texas every single year. Um, they have to drive through these roads and they do it fast and they're, they're spotlights, they're spotlighting all over the place to get numbers. Uh, sometimes they'll get uh, disoriented and they've seen whitetail bucks jump the fence, like a j- jump a fence. And uh, that's that to me is crazy, right? That these animals, even though it's a high fence, if they really wanted to, they probably could still jump a nine foot fence. They're impressive animals. Yeah. No doubt about that. Absolutely. All right. So, and I, I know I'm kind of all over, uh, over the place with this, but you know, so just because we were going to these, we weren't guaranteed anything, especially in the exotic category. I hunted multiple times where the only thing that showed up were just whitetail, whitetail does while, you know, and it was hit and miss because a lot of the other people were having success where, where they were going to, right? And, I mean, at that at, from that point on, it was just, hey, let's go, you know, let's go, let's go to this blind and, and we're going to hunt here this morning and go there. And I said, hey, man, is there any way we could do a spot and stock hunt? And they said, yeah, absolutely. So my guide parks the truck and then basically what we're doing is we're glassing um, down these roads, we're just kind of seeing where animals are moving. Um, maybe go make a move on them. And, uh, if they're still there, then we get a crack at it. And we, we, I did that two afternoons where two of my hunts were spot and stock. And we did get, uh, within shooting range of a black buck, two different black bucks at uh, one of the times. However, the allotment for black buck at that time had been filled up already. So I wasn't, I was no longer allowed to shoot one because they gave us a um, number of animals that we could shoot. So coyotes, hogs, 
You can shoot as many of those as you want. You can shoot as many rias as you want. Those are those ostrich type birds that I ended mm-hmm. up I ended up shooting. Mm-hmm. Uh, an audad, which is kind of like a a bigger goat. Uh, it's like a it's a sheep that's commonly found in North Africa. And and you know uh, so other than other than my encounter with those birds, uh, it was one of those. It was a hunt that I didn't. I wasn't in the right place at the right time while other people were, if that makes sense. Yeah. What did you think about the guide experience, having someone with you telling you what you could do, what you couldn't do, where you could go? What was that like? Yeah. So that was different for me because if it was up to me, I would have done things maybe a little bit different. Like, okay, I'm going to get up here. I'm going to walk down here. I'm going to go to this. And they had to have more of an operational look at it because there was uh, six other hunters in, in some of these enclosures as well, or some of these pastures as well. And so they ha- they were basically there to show us where to go and tell us what we could and couldn't shoot, right? Um, they kind of, uh, and I asked a lot of questions, so I got good history lessons from these guys. Uh, lots of information about how the quote-unquote high fence operations work how the exotic industry works um just a lot of information from them but at the same time it was awkward having a a person tell me basically everything right okay we're going here tonight we're gonna uh, at this at this site we're gonna probably see um black buck uh some hogs whitetails oddad whatever right and yeah I mean, and like I said earlier, man, we were there was times where the wind would shift and there was a like a group of whitetails coming in and they they bust us, they would sit back behind us like they always do, they would blow and then they would run away. And then they wouldn't come back until dark. And when they blow, that keeps all the other most of the time, that keeps all the other animals away too. So that that was weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you ended up shooting that ostrich thing, huh? <laughs> yeah, this is, what a goofy animal, right? So we get to, we get to the blind and, uh, we can see them in the distance, long ways away. They show up and the feeder goes off. And the second the feeder goes off, their heads pop up and they look at it again, kind of conditioned to show up and they take their sweet time coming in. But what's funny about these birds is it's almost like they have a jealousy issue and they're all looking at each other. Who's going to be the first one to go into the feeder. Who's going to be the first one. They're all walking real slow. And then one of them out of the group of, I I think there was probably eight of them. There was no seven. There was three males. One was a big mature male Two, I guess you would call them immature males and four females. And they all, then one committed and ran and then they all ran and it was like piranhas eating, right? So I drew back, I drilled the, the old male, the oldest male, he runs off, he dies. The second he falls over dead, they all puff up and they all start fighting each other. So (laughs) they were, they were instantly fighting for dominance of that group. That was, that was cool to see. Right. I don't know if you ever heard there's one guy telling a story about um, he went on a buffalo hunt uh, out in South Dakota or somewhere out there. He shot the lead male and instantly there was like a, a buffalo riot where hmm. where they were doing this. Now, 
Did you did you hear how quick that story was? Yeah. Okay. This is where this is another thing that I I had trouble trying to express myself because I come back, I have the bird with me. Um, we get pictures taken. It's getting ground up. It's going to get sent to me, and I'm going to have the meat from it. So they the guys come in and they're like, "Oh man, awesome! Congratulations! Tell me the story." And I had to sit and think, and I go, "It." I I went to the feeder. It showed up, and I shot it, right? Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's not a very good story, right? So even even going into the details, right, and like, you know, uh, I saw it from a long ways away. He he came in. He did – he they ate for a little bit. I shot him, turned around, ran off. He died. Uh, they started fighting, and then they went away. Like – the story portion of this, which I'm a huge component of, right? I don't, I don't hunt for big antlers. I don't, I hunt for the story, the experience. And yes, there was a good experience, but it wasn't an experience overwhelmingly that made me go, oh my God, I'm going to do this again and again and again and again, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just was like, man, I, like something's lost here. And I still can't figure out what it is. And maybe it's just because it is that cultural difference. It is that, um, it's that it's, it's so different for me. I'm so out of my element that I wasn't able to even absorb what was going on. And I think one of the things when I imagine this kind of scenario, it's like you said, so much of what makes hunting such a powerful experience, I think is all the work and all the process that goes into and leads mm-hmm. up to that final moment. Mm-hmm. And it kind of sounds like in a scenario like this, you kind of skip all of that. Yeah. And it's just the, the kill, which I could, which, which I would feel would, or I can imagine that would feel hollow. Like yeah. what you're describing kind of feels like it would feel hollow. It's like, yeah, I have the outcome. I got the picture. I have some meat, but all the substance is missing is what right. it kind of sounds like you're describing. Yeah. And that's what I told these guys. Uh, I said, man, this is weird for me because, you know, I, I, go, I, I'm involved in the harvesting of the animal. Right. And what I mean by that is I go out and I set the trail cameras up. I check the trail cameras. I go out and I set the tree stands up. I run and gun. I'm tearing up and setting down. I'm active in the pursuit and I'm not as active. I wasn't active in this pursuit. And that's why a couple of the nights I was just like, Hey man, can we do a spot and stock? And I think I did that because I wanted to feel more active in the pursuit of this game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Did you, did you hear there were other people on this hunt? Did anyone have similar concerns? Did anyone yeah. feel differently? Did anyone just not give a shit and just want to shoot a bunch of stuff? Where was the collective mindset yeah. across the board? Yeah. So I think, for a lot of people, this was a first experience for a lot of people in a, I know for at least four others, there was, uh, this was a first experience and the, for the people who it wasn't their first experience, this is not their first option as far as style of hunting. But again, with this being, with this being a media hunt. And what I mean by that is I was invited to go to this ranch and, go on this hunt and you know, I did it 
it was it was a business and pleasure trip mixed together. It wasn't straight pleasure like what most of my hunting is like, right? There's some business involved. We sat through a pre- presentation. We did some podcasting. I talked to, you know, talked to a lot of business and whatnot. And so for the other people that had never done this before, some people were, hey, man, this is strange to me, just like I felt it was. But also there was a group of people there that were like, this is awesome. You know, look at all the opportunities we're getting. Look at uh, all the animals we're getting to see. And they had no problem going out and shooting them. Um, and, you know, even even with all that said, there was still people there that were like, I, I, I'm definitely going to go on a hunt like this again. And then there's other people that were like, hey, man, this isn't my bag of apples. I'm, you know, this is fun. I'm going to take part in it. But, you know, I probably won't be back. I probably mm-hmm. won't ever do anything like this. Did you, uh, speaking of the fact there was a media hunt, I know that you had kind of, in our initial conversation, you kind of positioned this as like you were going to do this mostly because of the potential upsides from a media perspective, business perspective. Did you get where you're hoping you would out of this experience on that front? Yeah, I do. I mean, from a business standpoint, I, I made several contacts, right? I talked with a lot of people um, in the right positions, and I got, I definitely the, the business side of it was worth it for me to do this. Absolutely. Now, now, okay, that's cool. On the other side, you know, I saw some comments on social media um, where people said that they thought you might get some blowback from this and that there might be some downsides to that decision. Have you felt any kind of potential downside or blowback to doing this? I don't think so. Other than a couple, you know, you know, other than a cop, a couple, social media things like I've, I haven't felt anybody like straight up hate on me because I, I also, I think I did a really good job of, um, breaking down. This is not a canned hunt. This is not some guy sitting in, you know, letting, letting deer off of a truck or animals off of a truck saying, yeah, get in there. Yeah. You know, and running them in and just straight up blowing like, I don't know. It, it's it wasn't like that. It wasn't, wasn't like that. that yeah. yeah. So and and I did a really good job of describing step by step through my Instagram stories how everything was kind of breaking down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so I feel like through this whole conversation, you've pointed to a lot of things that you see now as misconceptions. Yes. About this about high fence hunting about this whole thing. Yes. Um. Were there any things now having done this that stand out to you as being proven true? So like there's a bunch of concerns. You right. believe that some of these things are misconceptions. Are there any of these things that now you say, well, yeah, that actually was a real concern or yeah, now after having experienced that, I still feel, you know, maybe not good about this thing or that thing or, or is there nothing like that? Yeah. So I think the biggest thing I, I keep going back to the cultural difference here. Right. And one thing that I think I found to be true is that if you really wanted an animal, they were going to do they were going to do just about anything to get that animal for you, right? If you really really wanted to, now they're not going to go out and they're not going to dart it and lay it in front of you and have you shoot it, right? But, you know, they may they may uh do a, a deer drive into you, uh, into your location or, you know, they didn't do that while we were there. 
And I don't think that happens a lot. But when a customer comes in and says, I want this to happen, uh, they're going to do everything that they possibly can within a realm of ethics. Because as far as this, uh, this ranch was concerned, th- that, that they weren't going to do that. They weren't going to like dart a deer. They weren't going to uh, like lead it in on a rope. They weren't gonna, They were going to do a lot to help you, but you still had to, you still had to work for it. Right. So other than that, the big disconnect for me comes with the, the financial side of it, right? There is basically a menu sitting out that says, here's what every animal costs. And you can get any animal you want, or you can have the opportunity. We're going we're gonna to guarantee that we, we give you the opportunity, but you still have to make the shot. And that for me, I can look at that and I can go, because big antlers typically don't mean shit to me, right? I, I want a different type of experience. I'm not going to pay $3,500, $4,000, to go and do this because I can get a similar experience where I currently hunt in Iowa for $54 and 50 cents, right? That's how much it costs for me to get my hunting license and a, well, I think it's more than that now, like 70 bucks for 70 bucks. I can get my hunting license. I can get a, my buck tag and I can get a a doe tag, right? Mm -hmm. So to me, it just doesn't seem reasonable to go out and from, from a financial standpoint to do this, like number one, I, I, I don't have the, like the income to just go blow money like that. Right. I'd rather go on an elk hunt out up in the, for $2,000, right. I can get a tag and I, all my food and transportation for roughly $2,000. I can go on an elk hunt. Now it's not going to be a guaranteed elk hunt on a, on, for opportunities, but I can definitely see why th- uh, this kind of environment is, is so attractive to certain people, right? Number one, people like big antlers. They're, they're going to have an opportunity at uh, big antlers when they go to a place like this. Um, people want opportunities. You're going to have a shit ton more opportunities at an environment like this than you would, you know, at home, you know, back on in Michigan or whatever. So I think what you're ultimately paying for is higher odds and bigger antlers, to be honest with you. So that right there to me is just like, I, I like to do more of the work. And I think that's where not, it's not unattractive. It's just not my style. So if there's another media hunt event with good business opportunities and they go back to a facility, something like this, would you do it? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. Um, I don't know. Um, maybe if it was still exotic animals, definitely not whitetails. I'm just not interested. This, this right here was one of these things where it was, I'm just not interested in hunting whitetails in an, in an environment like this. And again, I've had a lot of people from Texas reach out to me and basically say, Hey man, this is all we have down here. And I get that. But it's just not my it's not my it's not my style. Yeah. So so help me better understand though your perspective on the exotic animals yeah. because 
I understand like you can you're saying like hey it's a thing I couldn't hunt anywhere else but is it yeah what am I trying to say here like does it because when I think about like it's still an animal that was shipped in from somewhere else unnaturally it's now in an unnatural relatively unnatural environment that's on a menu um like all those things still kind of feel icky a little bit does that does it not feel that way to you yeah it's weird because there's a part of me that says dude you're just you're just justifying it right and right there's, there's a... this like it's like uh, i what am i trying to say here? i know sometimes like for example if you vote for a political candidate right after you vote for that political candidate even if they do like this is just a thing that happens out in the world like, even if they do a bunch of things you don't agree with the human tendency is to start to try to rationalize rationalize it and try to make it seem okay in your head because you don't like that cognitive dissonance like you don't want to feel like you were wrong with that original decision so like did you ever feel that kind of thing with this um you know not really but maybe a little bit but again i think that this experience as a whole was was just straight up it was straight up different i mean it it's it was hard for me to it's still hard for me to explain this experience i can tell you as an overall thing and the group of people that i was with it was fun for me. I had a, I had a really good time, uh, going on this hunt and going, and, and I feel comfortable because I, do you remember us on the previous episode? Is this hunting? I, yeah. I definitely think this is hunting the, what I did. Uh, it's not canned. It's not staged. It's not like you still have to make the shot. You still have to be patient. These deer have an equal opportunity of escape. Right. So it's just a different kind of hunting. Right. I, but it's, I don't know, like, and I, I do want to, I do want to mention that of all the, na- like this may, some of this stuff may come off as negative towards these operations. And again, I just keep have to, having to preach cultural difference, but at the same time, the people who worked there were some of, were some really awesome, nice, beautiful people. Like just great people, you like know? how beautiful. <laughs> That's it's funny because we had we joked about that. Like you, you guys are beautiful people, but um, it's Sorry. just like really good, really good down to earth people. Like born and raised, like you know, just like I was born and raised in Iowa, and I hunt Iowa every year. Those people who are just like, oh, dude, t- you hunt Iowa, it's so easy there, right? Well, they're right. right about that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just like, oh, you, you hunt, you hunt in high fence in Texas. They're saying that without knowing anything. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So these people are awesome. They run a really good operation. They follow the laws. They, they're, they run a clean, consistent ranch within regulation. And I just, overall, I just think that people, instead of talking shit, should just either experience it or accept the fact that it's different than what they currently do, right? Mm-hmm. There's bad apples everywhere. We know this. I mean, shit, there's bad apples in Iowa, guys who poach, guys who, you know, are baiting when they shouldn't be baiting. We have lawbreakers. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we should judge an entire community based off of one individual, right? Mm-hmm. If all hunters, yeah. even in Michigan, in Iowa, if all hunters got judged based off of some dipshit poaching, 
then we would all be in trouble. This is true. So is this something that I would do with my own money? No, I I don't think I would. Just because I'm not like, number one, I can't afford it. And number two, I go back to my experience. Like we, we always talk about the experience, right? It's not the experience I want. However, I can, I now understand why people do it. I understand more of the culture and how all that works. And just a side note, high fence operations in Texas are the reason why I want to say from, from the two examples I was given, there's two species that are no longer or that were saved from extinction because of Texas coming in and, and, uh, saving animals. You're so, saying by like some like of these exotics. keeping them in these enclosures, yeah. Yeah. So gotcha. here's here's one story. I forget the name of the animal. I want to call it a Pierce the Pierce David uh, deer, but anyway, out in China, there was only like eleven of these animals left, right? And they all lived on the imperial grounds in China. Well, this massive flood came through and wiped out a lot of the agriculture and animals in China, and the emperor ordered those deer to be heart like butchered for meat well the this preacher who was over there realized that these were the only animals of their kind left so he stole seven of them i think it was seven of them he stole seven of them put them in a ship and took them to texas and there they were saved from extinction and now they have a value because they're hunted. So there's there's more of a reason for them to exist, right? Like that to me, that to me almost sounds like conservation. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, yeah. interesting anecdote. Yeah, which which I guess on that in that vein. So you've gotten to see it's a really interesting perspective that you're sharing here, which which I'm glad to have heard. Yes. Um, interesting you got some great points about the cultural differences about these different experiences and traditions um which i think is helpful for people to hear about yeah um now having seen it from the inside um and understanding what this operation was what other operations may or may not be like do you see high fence operations with breeding programs like this with exotics whatever it might be is this a good thing for the future of hunting is this neutral to the future of hunting or bad for the future of hunting? Okay. So for the future of hunting, for me, it's neutral, right? Because right now I, I feel like I'm not going to, um, I don't know. I feel like I'm not going to be taking part in operations like this. However, I think it's good because with supply comes demand, right? And I feel that the people down in Texas who are running these ranch have as just just as much skin in the game to hunting as the rest of us do, right? You know, we want to see these traditions continue. We want to see um, people be able to go and do whatever it is that they want uh, when it comes to hunting. These guys have, ju- I, I say, these guys have just as much skin in the game to the hunting culture and to the hunting community and even the hunting industry as we do up north and in other quote-unquote non-high fence 
hunting scenarios. 10-4. What, uh, what else? Is there any other final thoughts that you want to make sure to, you know, to share on this? It's just, like I said, I think boiling it all down, it's something so different than what I'm used to. You know, I went ahead and I made my assumptions before I even went and, and, and did this. Going there, it opened my eyes to a new way. Um, maybe it's not my way, but I really think that before anyone judges, either live the experience yourself or go and and do as much research about it as possible and, and find find positives in it because this is this experience wasn't just going in to a high fence area and shooting an animal. It was way more than that. I met some great people. Um, the cultural difference, I just keep going back to that. And um, we're, we're all hunters under the same roof. Uh, I know there's a lot of divisions right now. I mean, whether, you're, whether you hunt down south, north, east, west, whatever, everybody hunts differently. And in order for us to get past that and really progress, not only on conservation issues, but on other, you know, other other big issues like maybe disease or, um, you know, what, what constitutes quote unquote fair chase, then I think we all need to sit down and have like a conversation with each other and not judge. And I think that's what this experience has taught me most of all. I think that's, uh, that's a good thing. I mean, that's a good learning experience and a lot of good points you've got there about, um, Right. You know, having those conversations, I think that it's it's really hard for any of us to draw the line for anybody else. We probably all need to draw our own line somewhere. But I I agree that having that conversation and at least thinking through these things is is valuable. So uh, so I've 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 found this interesting and helpful to hear about your perspective. I, you know, maybe feel differently about some things, but I can certainly respect um what other people are doing and, and what you experienced and, and what you learned from this. And I think that's, that's interesting and, and probably helpful for all of us to hear. So, uh, yeah. interesting stuff, man. I will say though, next time you shoot or when you shoot that 200 inch buck in Iowa, one of these years, um, I'm now going to have like a new punchline I can throw at you. And try. <laughs> <laughs> High fence, dude. High fence, dude. <laughs> and I, and Just we'll, kidding. We'll end, we'll end on this. I, I would strongly suggest to you, whether you have the means or not, or someone ever offers you a, a hunt like this, I would strongly suggest taking it and, and just, if nothing else, to see what it's like. Because I feel it changed the way I look at certain things. Maybe not a lot, but enough. Well, that's... At least think about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just, it's, it's something to think about. Yeah, whether you decide I... to do it or not, I'm just saying... Just I value the suggestion. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Absolutely. I will think about it. And I definitely have found it really interesting to hear about your, your experience. Super interesting. And I think it is good, especially just to understand the gray area and not to lump everything into certain categories. And, uh, and I think that's, that's been helpful. So, uh, I enjoyed hearing about this. Well, man, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Yeah, buddy. Same to you. Again, I just want to thank Mark for taking time out of his day. I don't think there's a better guy to actually, you know, walk through this, um, this 
topic than with him uh, because uh, he, he tends to keep an open mind and also he's not from that culture. And um, so I am going to say for all the people out there who do live in this in that culture, the high fence hunting culture, I will be following up with this podcast with another podcast where I'm going to be talking to some of the people who work at the Lazy CK Ranch. They're going to probably fill in a lot of gaps for us as far as how that uh, how that ranch operates um, the culture all these different things that guys like me and Mark can't relate to because we don't live within that culture right I just visited it for uh, for a week and um, I'm sure I dropped the ball on a lot of places and I I only feel that it's fair to have those guys on to fill in any holes that uh, me and Mark may have missed uh, when talking about this topic. So uh, keep an eye out for that. Huge shout out to all of you who have taken time to listen to this podcast. Please go to social media when when you hear this and when you when it launches. Go to social media, whether it's on the Instagram page or the Facebook page. Please leave your opinions because I really would love to hear what you guys have to say about this topic, what your thoughts are, um, and about anything really. And because uh, that's what makes a community grow together is being open and communicating together. So uh, hopefully. Hopefully you guys uh, leave some comments on that. Other than that, huge shout out to all the partners of this podcast, Hunter Safety Systems, Lone Wolf, Wasp, Ripcord, Ozonics, and Prime. Please go out and support the companies that support this podcast. And uh, I'm going to keep this short. Uh, Go subscribe, right? That's how you follow along with everything that we do here at the Sportsman's Nation and at the Nine Finger Chronicles. Whether you want all the podcasts and you want to subscribe to the network feed or you just want the Nine Finger Chronicles, please go subscribe to those, uh, those RSS feeds. And other than that, hopefully everybody has a great rest of your week. And remember, our friends at Hunter Safety Systems are reminding us all that if you're going to be in a tree, please wear your damn safety harness. Have a good rest of the week.